at God's feast. Jesus provides the meal, and he is pleased with whatever offering we bring. This is our sermon summary today. I'll say it again. At God's feast, Jesus provides the meal, and he is pleased with whatever offering we bring. On May 23rd, 2009, I was married to the most amazing woman I have ever met. We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary recently, and some of you were there 10 years ago at our wedding day. As we watched the video, we saw some of you coming inside and, and sitting down. It was a blessing. It was amazing to see the video and to relive that memory. Now, a fair warning, I'm going to talk a lot about being married today. And the reason is that I believe that being married has given me a, a particular insight on our subject this morning. And you'll understand what I mean as I go on. So 10 years ago, my wife and I were married. You can see a picture of that day there. That's one of my favorite pictures of us. That's as we were being prayed over by her father. It was a special day. And I have never doubted for a moment that I am a very, very blessed man. Lisa has it all. She's beautiful, she's intelligent, she's funny, and best of all, she has low standards. <laughs> now, you laugh, but let me tell you a story. Hold the uh, disagreement until after you hear the story. It's a story about marriage, about leadership, and about why my wife should be canonized as a saint. Perhaps most interestingly, it's a story I have never told before, ever. And it's a story I don't think anyone here knows because it happened behind the scenes at our wedding. So we had a beautiful service. My mentor, John Wentz, he did the first part of the ceremony, and then Fred Johnson, Lisa's dad, did the rest of it. And it was beautiful. But something that you cannot see is that I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Now, I don't mean that I didn't know what I was doing getting married. I knew exactly what I was doing for that, and I was, it was absolutely intentional and desired and wanted. What I didn't have any idea of what I was doing was the wedding itself. I hadn't been to many weddings. The ones I did go to, I often skipped the reception. And because I'd been to so few receptions, I really didn't know what I didn't know. So months earlier, when I asked Lisa how I could help as she was going through the stress of planning the ceremony, and she said, can you plan the reception? I did what I thought at the time was the job of any good husband, but I have since realized this is not the case. I said, yes, dear, and asked no questions, right? So I'm supposed to plan my reception, and I did, to the best of my understanding. Here's what that means. First, I contacted the church to confirm that we had the room reserved for the reception, and they said yes. And that was about all I knew to do. You see, Lisa had already ha asked someone to take care of bringing the food and and we already had the idea to provide activity pages for people while we were taking pictures while they were waiting because we were both children's ministers, so we thought that was kind of a fun thing. And the cake was going to be there. 
the best man and maid of honor knew they were supposed to give speeches. What else was there to do? Now, here's the thing. There are two groups of people sitting in here right now. Most of you, especially those of you who have been married, are thinking, oh, wow, there's a lot more to do, and he really messed up. And then there's some of you that don't realize anything is wrong with just checking to make sure that the room is reserved. And, and I was part of that group. If you're in that group here, if you're like me, hear me. If one day you find yourself getting married and your wife asks you to plan the reception, you need to ask the question, what does that entail? So, after pictures, we walk toward the reception hall, and this is when my wife learned something very important about me. You see, sometimes a leader needs to present a posture of confidence, even when they don't know what they're doing. A leader who can appear confident can inspire and encourage the people around them who are nervous or uncertain. But there's a problem. Sometimes you actually need to know what you're doing. Right? So when Lisa would ask me, did you plan the reception? I answered, yes, I planned the reception. Confident, right? Which is why she was horrified when, as we approached the reception hall after pictures, she asked, who's the MC?" And I said, we need an MC." So uh, I ran in and I asked John Wentz, who'd done part of the ceremony, to do that. And then when we entered, it, it was great. He, he was funny, and he called our names and everything, and we sat down to eat. And Lisa looked over at me and asked, what's next? And I looked like Jim Haynes up here eating pie with my mouth full. I looked over at her and I go, mm-hmm. And the, the look in her eyes showed me that both her and I were realizing something at the exact same time that would be very, very important. My wife was in for a much bigger headache than either of us had realized. Now today, we're talking about sacrifices. Not human sacrifices like my wife may have been ready to make at the reception on our wedding day. We're talking about sacrifices in the book of Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament. We're in this series going through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we're calling it Eating with the Word. And the idea that we have here is kind of the picture of having Jesus come to dinner. And each of the books that we're going through is a different part of that process. Leviticus is a book about practical things. And it's easy for us to forget that our relationship with God, in our relationship with God, the details matter. There's a lot of practical things to consider. We can start to think that it's just an emotional or a spiritual thing and what we do doesn't matter. Leviticus is a book that reminds us God cares about the details. Then the book of Numbers. We think of the book of Numbers kind of like the, the, the eating the meal. So Leviticus is kind of like setting the table, right? Taking care of the physical things, the details. Numbers is like eating the meal, both, both Jesus as the bread of life, but then also eating, diving into, consuming God's word. And then the book of Deuteronomy is kind of that, that time after dinner. You know when, when everyone is done and no one has cleared the plates yet, but you sit and you talk and you share stories and memories and, and you enjoy one another's company. Deuteronomy is about remembering. It's about fellowship. It's about a relationship with God. And so eating with the word is kind of this process of having Jesus 
over for dinner. Today, we talk about Leviticus, the practical things. So sacrifices. If you read the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus, you're going to realize very quickly that sacrifices were a major part of Israel's covenant with God. And there were five different kinds of sacrifices. And we're going to look at each one of them very briefly today. All of them involved some kind of food brought to the Lord because the people who'd entered into a covenant with him were unclean or were sinful. You see, a covenant is a commitment made between two groups, whether they're individuals or groups. And there's expectations and promises made to one another. It's kind of like a relationship contract. And as Israel entered into this covenant with God, there were things that he had promised to do, to watch over them, to protect them, to always go with them, to care for them. And there were promises that they had made as well, to love and to follow and to obey and to worship him. And so, sacrifices were given to them because he is holy, and they often are not. And that's a problem because if you live in close proximity to a holy God, and you are either unclean or or guilty of sin, you could not be in his presence. So the sacrifices, they sort of smooth over the issues that come up from a covenant made between a perfect and holy God and an imperfect people. So when it was time to sacrifice, they had some things in common. They would usually bring some kind of meat, although sometimes it was grain or or even types of plant. And they would give it to the priests who would prepare the sacrifice. And then the priests gave it to God. Sometimes that meant it was burned up. Other times it meant it was eaten by the priests who acted as God's representatives. Now, I've heard people say that they feel like this is a foreign thing to them. That the idea of sacrifices being part of a relationship with God is hard for them to wrap their minds around. It just seems so alien that a covenant would involve sacrifices. And that strikes me as odd. It's odd to me that people would find it odd that a covenant involves sacrifice because I'm married. Now, if you're married and you don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably because you're better at it than I am. I think I understand the idea of sacrifice because I have made a lot of mistakes. You see, marriage is also a covenant. Now, a marriage covenant is actually similar to the covenant between the Israelites and God in a lot of ways. It's different because we do not worship our spouse. And it's different because in a marriage, the two are interdependent on one another. God did not need anything from his people, and he does not need anything from us. We are not interdependent with him. But the covenants are similar in a lot of ways. They're similar in that unfaithfulness is a reason for the covenant to end. And they're similar because one party relies on the grace of the other. Or both parties rely on the grace of each other. Now, there are fundamentally three different types of sacrifice in Leviticus. We're going to go through them quickly. 
The first type is what I'm calling the smooth over sacrifices. These were the burnt offering and the grain offering. They're described in Leviticus chapter 1 and 2. Now God knew that even though they had not, even when they had not done a specific thing that was wrong or against the law, the very fact that the Israelites were a fallen people meant that they were going to mess up over and over again. They were going to mess up in big ways and in small ones. And sometimes they'd mess up and not even realize it. Because of that, God prescribed these smooth over sacrifices. On a regular basis or whenever a person felt anxious about their relationship with God, they would offer one of these. The burnt offering was a young bull or a goat or a bird. And they'd bring the offering forward and they'd place their hand on the animal. And then the person would kill the animal and the priest would spread its blood on the altar and burn it all. And it was understood that giving this offering to God brought atonement or it appeased God for whatever mistakes the person had made without even knowing it. So let me make this clearer. A person was worried that God would be upset with them, and so they brought him food to show him they loved him and they wanted him to be pleased with them. The burnt offering was food. They brought a meal to God. And if you think that's not actually what the, the sacrifices were, I want to show you Leviticus 1.17. This jumped out at me as I was studying for this. It's a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma-pleasing to the Lord. You can just imagine the bringing of a meal that smells good as a way of smoothing over differences. I said that my marriage helped me to understand this a bit, and, and I want to give you an analogy. Some of you know that I do most of the cooking in my marriage. If you didn't know that, you do now. Do you want to know why it's a good idea to do things like cook for your spouse? Because when you're worried that you have messed up, or you will mess up, or you mess up on a regular basis, food goes a long way to smoothing things over. Now, it's not always that I've done something specifically wrong. It's that I know that there are a thousand little things that bug my wife on a regular basis, and each one is like a small withdrawal out of a bank account of her patients, right? For example, I have this terrible habit of leaving cabinet doors open. I don't know why, but she jokes, and she's right, that she can always tell what I was in because every cabinet that I touch stays open while I'm in the kitchen, while I'm getting food, whatever it is, and it makes her crazy. No matter how hard I try, I cannot remember to close a drawer after I've opened it. Sometimes it's absurd. If you come over to my house on a small, on short notice, you might see me run to the kitchen and start closing things because I don't want you to see how many things I've left open in there. And so one of the things I do, because of these little irritants, these things that just bug her, is to make her food. Now, if you're not, if you're not someone who goes out of their way to do things for their spouse, if you're married and you don't pursue them, if you don't do something like make food to show that you love them, I really want to encourage that you do so. It goes a long way towards putting more deposits than withdrawals in the account. And when I make her food, it reminds her that even though I'm ridiculously unable to close a cabinet drawer, I love her, and it sort of smooths things over. 
All marriages need that. They need things to just sometimes be smoothed over. The root of the problem doesn't get fixed, but a reassurance of love and connection and commitment goes a long way to smoothing things over. Now the difference is that God didn't need the Israelites to make these smooth over offerings. They weren't for him. It was for the sake of the people. If God lives in the tabernacle and you know that this God cannot abide the presence of a person who's unclean or unholy, and you're just not sure if you've done anything wrong, if you're worried about your status with him, you bring a burnt offering, and now you can approach him joyfully. Now, you might be thinking, that could get expensive, right? If you had to kill an animal every time you were worried that things weren't right between you and God, that could, that could get expensive, So God gave them the other smooth over offering. It was called the grain offering in Leviticus 2. And it accomplishes literally the same thing as the burnt offering, except that it's a lot cheaper. Leviticus 2.2, the priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If you want to know what this is like, In a marriage context, husbands, this is a good idea. Every now and then, it's a good idea just to swing by somewhere and pick up a cinnamon roll or a pastry just because and take it home, right? This is bringing a baked good to God to smooth things over. I think most of us can relate to something like that. And it sort of deposits in the account. The next type of sacrifice is the forgiveness sacrifice in Leviticus 4 and 5. These are the sin offering and the guilt offering. Like the burnt offering, you bring an animal, and the more grievous your sin or the more powerful a person you are, the bigger your sacrifice needed to be. And blood would be offered on the altar, and your sin would be forgiven. And the priest would eat the remaining meat. And that's important. Because that's how you knew that you were forgiven. You see, the priests represented God. And so when they eat the meat, it's as though God has accepted the meal that you've brought him. The blood has been spilled, the sin has been paid for, and the meal you brought to the Lord, he eats. The relationship is reconciled. The sin is forgiven. Now that's why I have a hard time when people talk about the Old Covenant as a religion, but not a relationship. The rituals outlined the way the relationship worked between God and his people. They literally shared meals together on a regular basis. He provided them everything, and they knew it. And they gave thanks. They offered repentance by giving him food in return. Now you might think that that actually it sounds like a vending machine. They bring him food and they get forgiveness. And that it doesn't sound like it matters what their heart position was. And that's not the case at all. First of all, the the guilt and the sin offering did not work without repentance. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the Lord is clear that sacrifices without heartfelt repentance are useless. There's a bunch of passages throughout many of the prophets. I chose one today from the book of Proverbs, actually, that makes this pretty clear. It's Proverbs 15, 8. The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. 
In other words, just because you brought a sacrifice doesn't mean that forgiveness is given. If there's no repentance, if there's no desire, if there's no allegiance to God, forgiveness is not given. The heart had to be right. Then the sacrifice comes and forgiveness is extended. So the two so far, we have like a smooth over sacrifice and a forgiveness sacrifice. The last one is this. It's a free will or fellowship offering. And it's an expression of gratitude or worship and worship. And you could bring food, any kind of food, or you could bring something else. You just bring anything that was valuable to you and you'd sacrifice it to the Lord as a way of saying thank you. And then if it was food, you'd eat a portion of it with the priests to show that you are sharing a meal with God. Now, this is what Leviticus, the sacrifices in Leviticus are about. They're about a connection between God and his people, a covenanted connection or fellowship together. What in the world does that have to do with us today, here on the other side of the cross in the new covenant? Now, all of this, the entire system of sacrifice, was a byproduct of the grace of God. I think that helps us to understand how it matters to us today. Listen to Hebrews 10, 1 through 7. It says this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. In other words, the sacrifices did not actually cause the people to be forgiven. And I want you to hear that because that's really important. The sacrifices that God's people offered did not actually cause them to be forgiven. Forgiveness from God has always been based on the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Always. It went in both directions. Any forgiveness God extended to his people came from Jesus. They just didn't know it yet. And the sacrifices helped them to get an idea of what was happening and helped them participate in it. But Jesus is the source of all forgiveness from God. That's important. You could say that Jesus is the smooth over sacrifice. You see, we have this, this relationship with God that is so much more precious, important, significant, close than the people in the Old Covenant ever could. Yes, they had God dwell in their midst. And are there times that it would be amazing to see a cloud come down and speak, to see the presence of God in that way? But what you and I have 
is the presence of God dwelling within us. Once we repent, commit to God, give him our allegiance, accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we receive him into us. But we are an impure and unclean, sinful people. How can, how can a holy God reside in an imperfect vessel? The sacrifice of Jesus smooths that over. And Jesus is the forgiveness sacrifice. All of our sins, the ones we have not yet committed, are already forgiven in Christ. Once we accept him, we are forgiven fully. The worst things we will ever do that have not happened yet are already forgiven. They were forgiven at the cross. Jesus is the forgiveness sacrifice. And so you can think of this as coming to to eat a meal, to enjoy a feast with God. And Jesus is the host. He makes it possible for us to be there. And Jesus is the food. He's the offering God gives to us that if we take, if we accept, if we partake in the bread of life, then we're forgiven and we're His. There's only one type of offering for us to bring. The free will offering. You see, there's There's no substitute in Jesus for spontaneous acts of gratitude, of thankfulness, of worship. We're still called to bring those sacrifices to God. Now, there's no schedule. There's no requirement for that. It's not that we have to bring bring something to the Lord every so often in order to be in his good graces. It's so much better than that. The free will or the fellowship offering is a thing that's offered out of a sincere heart, out of a desire to please the Lord. So you think about being a child on Father's Day. For those of you that are still little, this may be your current experience. For those of you that are dads, it might be an experience on the other side. But a father on Father's Day is always pleased by the gifts their children give. Always. Hopefully. Now, it doesn't mean that the child has gone and done something that the father actually needs them to do. In my home, I would sometimes get money, a little bit of money from my mom or my dad, and I would go and buy my dad some terrible tie for Father's Day. He didn't need the tie. In fact, he probably never wore the tie. It was what a 10 or 12-year-old boy thought looked good. Right? Not something to wear in a professional setting most of the time. But dad was always pleased by it. When I was younger than that, it was even worse. I would just give him things that were already his. I mean, what am I going to do? I wanted to give dad something for Father's Day, so I'd go and get something that already belonged to him, and I'd give it to him again. And my father always was pleased. Not because he was getting something he needed but because the gift was an expression of love to him. That's what we're called to do, is to give our God, our Lord Jesus, expressions of love. They're not things that can be forced or faked. 
You can't give an offering that will please the Lord if your heart does not belong to Him. But if your heart does belong to Him, then any offering you give will be pleasing. What kind of free will fellowship offerings do we have to give? Every Sunday morning, we pass a plate here. Did you know that there's no requirement? We don't actually check if everyone is tithing. If you've ever wondered if there's secret cameras making sure that you put enough in the offering plate as it goes by, there aren't, or if there are, I'm not allowed to tell you about them. Instead, that act is a free will offering. It's a response of thanksgiving to a God who's provided generously whom you want to give back to. That money's already his. You're giving him something that belongs to him. It's like a tie that the father already owns on Father's Day, but he's pleased and he'll use it. When we serve, when we give of our time and our gifts, we're not accomplishing something God would be incapable of doing without us. He delights in allowing us to participate with him. When we take on holy habits, Christian acts, behaving in inappropriate ways, we can't ever think it's because we'll be shamed or punished or disciplined or judged if we don't. There's so many pieces of this. I want to take one. We talk about modesty a lot, and I think that modesty is a good an important thing for a person to practice. But one of the ways we tend to communicate modesty is with shame. If you don't behave in this way, we're going to look at you, judge you, be upset. Well, what that means is that the person can't actually give a spontaneous act of love to their creator through an act of modesty. They're behaving. But what if, what if we could avoid instructing people in such a way that they'll feel shamed if they don't obey, and instead allow a person to decide, I want to consider the people around me, be considerate of them, and dress in this way. We do a very good job of this on Sunday mornings. Some of you would be much happier if everybody was in a suit. But we don't tell people that they need to get in a suit or that they need to dress up. We allow them to choose the way that they dress to come on Sunday morning. And some people choose to wear their best clothes because what they're offering to God is their best. And some people choose to dress casually because what they're promising to God is that they're not going to put on airs or pretend to be something they're not. A free will offering is given because the rule isn't enforced. What if we could trust, encourage, lift up, and praise without judgment? What kind of things do you judge people for? Do they know it? Because if they do, what you've done is created a situation where they have to behave They can't give a spontaneous reaction to their creator. I'm not saying we shouldn't have any expectations. I'm saying we should rethink the way that we do them.
What offering does God want from you? Is there a thing that you've been called to do? You've been given an opportunity to pursue. What space has he made for you to give back to him? What ways are you doing it now? I want to encourage you to take a genuine look at the way that you live as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, and ask, am I giving back to him with thanks? And if you're not, I want to encourage you to change that, to consider giving something in the offering plate till it hurts, or giving time that you don't really feel like is convenient for you to give away. Give that a try and see what happens in your heart and in your relationship with him. Step out in faith and volunteer for something you're not yet comfortable with. Sign up for a small group, even though you're not entirely sure you're going to feel comfortable in that environment. There is still time. Step out in faith. Give to our Lord an offering that says, God, I love you. And he will look on you in delight with a smile and say, my child, I love you too. Please pray with me. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. We love you and we praise you. And we ask for you to be with us. Lord, move in us in those areas where we give to you not because we desire to show you our love, but out of fear of punishment from you. Help us, Lord, to let go of that fear and to embrace the joyful reality that we are forgiven and accepted by you because of Jesus. And that the things that we do and the things that we give can be done freely from joyful love. And Lord, we ask that if there is a, a gift you've given or a call that you've made that we're unaware of, bring it to our attention, Lord, and prompt us to respond to you with love and with thankfulness. We pray these things in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.